2: Hello and welcome to Black British Lives Matter, the podcast. I'm Lenny Henry. And I'm Marcus Ryder. This is the podcast where we explore why and how Black British Lives Matter, acknowledging and dealing with the racism we face, but wanting to go far deeper than that. Exploring what it means to be black and British, our culture, our joy and our pain, and building on our book, Black British Lives Matter, available now in all good bookshops. Marcus, tell us what you've been up to and what we have in store today.
1: Well, Lenny, while you've been putting your feet up, taking it easy, I had to record a podcast episode all by myself.
2: I'm not sure I would call filming Amazon's mega drama Rings of Power, writing and starring in the new upcoming ITV drama Three Little Birds about the Windrush generation coming to Britain, writing a new installment of my memoir and a new children's book. I wouldn't call that putting my feet up, but go ahead, tell me what you did while my back was turned.
1: Oh, calm down. Okay, maybe not the best phrase to use. Yeah, anyway, too right. <laughs> anyway, I recorded an amazing episode on Black British Disabled People's Lives Matter.
2: Not having an essay on disability in our book, Black British Lives Matter, was one of my biggest regrets, but hopefully we can include one in the second edition. Hint, hint, Faber publishers who are listening to this, Such an important topic. So who did you have on?
1: I was really lucky. I was able to get two of the leading experts on the issue. So hit me with it.
2: Who were the guests?
1: So I had two amazing guests. First, I had Michelle Daly, possibly the leading campaigner on black disability rights for people in Britain. She works on grassroots issues as well as sitting on national and government boards and is the director of ALFI, the Alliance for Inclusive Education.
2: Okay, she sounds pretty amazing. Who else did you have?
1: My second guest was Katush Gol. Katush graduated in 2019 and in 2020 was instrumental in making sure that the Black Lives Matter protests that swept the UK following the murder of George Floyd included the needs and concerns of black disabled people. She is truly inspiring. All right,
2: sounds like you've done good. So let's have a listen to what you talked about.
1: Cool, so without any further ado, roll tape. Katush Gol. Michelle Daly, welcome to the podcast. As you know, the name of Lenny and my book and this podcast is Black British Lives Matter. I want to start by asking you both the most simpler questions. Why does Black British disability matter?
3: Interesting question, Marcus. Um, I should also say thank you for inviting us to be part of the podcast. Um, I think in simple way of answering the question, Why does, I would actually rephrase it actually, why does black disabled people's lives matter? And I can explain later later why I say it that way rather than black disability lives matter. First and foremost is often we talk about the lives and experiences of disabled people. We take a homogenous position as if disabled people are an it and what that does is erases our different experiences our different lifestyles and our different identities and for disabled people who are black who have different identities that is quite dangerous because what that does is it makes different aspects about us as subhuman for myself as a black disabled woman it's important that i feel that i belong to the community it's important that i'm recognized within the community, and the struggles that we've experienced. But also it's important to recognise black disabled people played a role in our emancipation and liberation. I know we're still struggling, but it's important to recognise that we are part of that. And we can pick up on some of these bits, I guess, later as we develop in the conversation. But the main thing is about recognising that we are part of the community and that we share in those struggles. And when we don't recognise the experiences of black disabled people's lives, is we then make assumptions that the experiences and lives of black disabled people are being met by the white communities. And we know that's not true, because if non-disabled people, our black non-disabled community is struggling and experiencing racism, what would then mean that we as black disabled people are not experiencing racism?
1: So, Katush, I'm going to ask you the same question, but... I'm going to take Michelle's lead and change it up a little bit then. So why do black disabled people's, black British disabled people's lives matter? How? What would be the best way for you to answer that?
0: Well, Marcus, I think that similar to what Michelle said, there is, I think one of the greatest things about being black is that it's not a singular experience. It's heterogeneous, it's complex. And being disabled belongs within those complexities just as much as the other identities. I also think that the way that intersectionality works, the way that different identities compound themselves to create different experiences has to be recognized as fully as possible. Otherwise, we won't be able to have a stronger community with better liberation. If you don't prioritize people that experience the full breadth Of anti-blackness you will always do a disservice to the community because there is so much in our experiences that we have to offer in perspective and the overlap between disability and blackness as social constructs is really fascinating to see how they inform each other and it's something that everybody can benefit from understanding.
1: Okay I so there's a little few things I want to unpack there and one is, my mother asked me just the other day, even though I talk to her all the time, obviously, as to what is intersectionality. You know, and I I just assumed that people know, but we shouldn't assume these things. So, Katush, what do you mean by intersectionality?
0: Um, well, the term was coined and thought up by Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a prolific feminist. And... To summarize, I would say it speaks to the idea that human beings were not just one thing at a time. Our identities kind of layer together to create different lived experiences. In my case, similar to Michelle, I'm a black disabled woman. You say I'm I'm a young person. I have this occupation. I come from this background. All of these different things build and create varying levels of privilege or oppression. So. It's to say that two things can be true at once. You can experience one form of barrier or discrimination due to one aspect of your identity, but you can also have an advantageous position over others due to another identity. And it makes sure that we don't forget these, these overlaps, because then it becomes you know, a bit rigid, our understanding of how we can support people through these things and, dismantle injustices. Um for instance, if you are a black man, for example, whilst you may experience racial discrimination for being a black man, being black, sorry, being a man may give you an advantageous position over women in a lot of other areas of society, depending on. So I think that's just kind of a broad summary of intersectionality.
3: Yeah, just to add to the um point that Katush made and I think articulated quite well and it's also important that we do recognize it come it was coined by Kimberly William Crimshaw who is a black feminist and I think that's also important because when we look at the experience of black women it's about recognizing that our journey and struggle is very different and very distinct um, so if you look at our experiences as disabled black women um, I would take a slight different approach from where uh, Katusha is saying about it being laid. I'd more say that it comes together and it it tends to crash into one, if that's the best way of explaining. And those different experiences that we may experience, it's sometimes difficult to know which one of those experiences we're experiencing barriers about or against. So it's also important to recognise the role of the state and institutions in that, in the, in, the, in the way we uh, manoeuvre through life. So when we think about the whole issues around intersectionality, it's about the different barriers that we experience because of our different identities. And those different identities, we don't always know which one we're going to be discriminated with, and sometimes it can be every single one of them, depending on what setting we're in. And as black disabled women, we know the experience for non-disabled black women and we know the experience for disabled white women is, is, is often negative, but for us, it would be worse. Not likely, but it's going to be worse. And I'm t- saying this deliberately because I give an example. If we approach social service for assistance, the way the structure and the design of the assessment is done, it is not designed to meet the needs of black disabled women and for our audience so they can understand if we're talking about hair it may have 10 minutes for doing the hair seriously i would need longer than 10 minutes to do my hair so that's a clear example of how intersectional discrimination plays out and that is the role of the state in which it implements down to us and we get impacted by that negatively
1: so just to make sure I understand so for the assessment that the the state makes as to your needs and um uh, how I'm not sure if I'm using the right language please correct me if I'm if I'm not but how severe um your disability is they will have certain things that they'll ask you to do and how long it might take you and one of them for example is how long it will take you to do your hair is that correct and that assessment is based on white normative um, standards,
3: definitely, so actually, the question around here doesn't even come into the conversation. <laughs> I'm just saying so some of the things that would we would want to be considered wouldn't be in because it's an assumption that it would take five minutes or so, and it's also important, I think, Marcus, I think at this point, we should pick up on the word disability. what does that mean? What does that mean to us in society? now, for us as disabled people, we um, recognize the word disability as the barriers we experience in society. So it's about if we uh, try to access a building and can't access the building because it's got steps, then I've experienced disability. I don't have it. So when we're looking at the word disability, it's about recognizing those barriers. However, what intersectionality does is to not just look at us as that part of barrier in our life but to look at the whole picture us as a human yep
1: so I was actually going to come to this slightly later but to pick up on something Katush that you said you said that disability is a social construct mm-hmm. so is this this echo what Michelle was just talking about yes with regards to it being a social construct can you explain that a little
0: yes bit? exactly that um so having an impairment some form of medical diagnosis or condition, whether that's, I don't know, um, MS or spina bifida or um, a visual impairment, these are various things that are not a part of the natural spectrum of human life in the way that gender or race is, but the condition of being disabled is socially imposed through barriers in society, whether those are environmental barriers and the structure, the lay of the land, urban planning, whether that's attitudinal barriers, stigma, you know, bigoted attitudes. These are the things that make the difference to disabled people's life rather than, I would say, a very mm, problematic, extreme problematic way of looking at the impairment of the disabled person as being the determinant of their lived conditions. Um to I don't know, to illustrate this better, um, I have a mobility impairment, so I I have a different gait and I walk different to maybe somebody who is non-disabled. If someone were to see me struggling up the stairs into a building and their first thought was to pity me for how difficult it was for me, then they've completely misinterpreted the scenario together because the question should be why is there no step free access into the building for those who need it as opposed to such a shame that she can't walk the way I walk or how everybody else walks So
1: you know. In terms of, you talked about colonialism and I think that black people often viewed for our physicality, you know, if you think about our history of colonialism and our history of of slavery, and so I'd be very curious in terms of um, how that view of black people often view being viewed as labour for f- actual physical being, how that then impacts on discussions and thought around black disabled people. Um, Katusha or Michelle, either of you can jump in.
3: I can hop in a bit. Um, slavery used an ableist position which connected to racism to make people subhuman to make people property. And therefore, if you were a disabled person, you had no use in terms of going back to the question you had in terms of labour. And if you were found reading, you were injured. So there were things that we can see, ableist role. But we haven't connected those conversations. And we cannot talk about African enslavement. We cannot talk about racism without connecting it to ableism recent examples such as educationally subnormal schools what were the measures that were used measures were used testing the testing measures were based on ableism those ableist measures were used on looking at difference of our lifestyles and cultures and because they didn't fit into the colonial way imperialist way we were seen as less than and therefore were forced into educationally in subnormal schools the danger comes is when you start looking at the definitions that we have in our laws that allow for the separation of disabled people, and how those laws are for other people. So we have laws that allow for disabled children to go to segregated schools, and that same law we see operate right now for driving our children out of mainstream schools into PRUs and into other institutions such as prisons.
1: Because, um to talk to you both about perceptions of beauty. Now, I recently had a discussion around black hair and Western perceptions and values of of beauty. How do these discussions um, relate to black disabled people in terms of that intersectionality that that you were talking about?
0: That's a really great question. Um, And it's one that really, um, it has a very special place kind of in my heart. I think um, the way that disabled people are perceived by the broader society is a very interesting one. I would say that beauty is inherently political. Beauty, there's a really fascinating book called The Belly of the Beast that looks at the overlap in anti-fatness, fat phobia and anti-blackness that speaks to A social ugliness, so to speak. So there is this objective I think she's cute, I think he's fine. And then there is the kind of more macro perception of who gets value in society based on whether they're considered beautiful or not, and what informs what makes somebody beautiful, other than a set of systems that further marginalizes people. So being thin, Wealth, you know what I mean, being gender conforming, Um, um, adhering closer to a Eurocentric beauty standard that favors, you know, the way that white people look over black people and others. And most importantly to me, disability. I think that that social ugliness, ugly with a capital U, speaks to how you're able to access the society and the value placed on you and whether your perceived is beautiful or not. Um, but it's something that I definitely feel in my day-to-day life moving around, especially as black disabled women, it um, has a very profound impact because of the intersectionality. Often being a woman in the society is being beautiful is considered a prerequisite in a lot of instances. That's why you'll hear expressions, harmful ones like, oh, she was so ugly, she looked like a man. It's almost as if if you're not considered attractive, then your your gender identity is no longer affirmed. So as a black disabled woman, I think one of the biggest ways that I see this playing out in my day-to-day life and the lives of other disabled people is through... Um, participation in public life and community, similar to what Michelle mentioned. Um, in the States, um, during the late 1800s and early 1900s, to name, they had a set of laws called the Ugly Laws um, that are, it's a fascinating thing to go and like read more about, that basically speaks to controlling the movement of disabled people in public life so as to not upset the non-disabled masses so there were limitations to how they could access the public based off the fact that they were considered ugly or kind of a depressed caste if you will away from society it also included homeless people and other groups but this was these were a set of laws that targeted disabled people but to bring it back to the contemporary space it's a lot more subtle but it's still very much visible even though we are in the UK I had an experience a week ago where I was disabled people like myself, namely black disabled people at a festival were completely segregated from the rest of the attendees and were forced out of participating and receiving adequate service. But then there was an instance where another attendee who was disabled, but did not have a visible impairment, who was a white woman, was able to circumvent this segregation, even though, they also had access to the poor facilities we had and were able to get to the front. And even when you look at imagery and how we kind of advertise the public space, if there is a disabled person there, you know, if they put a token, the wheelchair user, they're typically, typically white and typically a man. And it's almost as if that's the digestible way to be disabled. But in the case of people like Michelle and myself, there are too many conflicting identities that disrupt, um, you could say, people's sensibilities and bigoted ideas about what makes somebody beautiful and therefore worthy of humanity and respect and dignity. Michelle,
1: perceptions of beauty and um, disability?
3: Definitely, I think um, what Katouche said, I can mirror. And I think many of us in our community will mirror those points. And I think it's one of these issues that really is harmful and it's harmful in many ways because it creates a lot of isolation for many of us because of the perception of beauty also impacts on how our friendships are formed on how relationships are formed and it creates a lot of questioning so for example if there is non-disabled people having friendships with people like myself and Katush, it'd be questioned about the value of that friendship. And that goes back to the idea around beauty and the ideal type of friendships you should have. And also, when you're socialising at events, and when I mean events, our community events, you definitely are aware of your difference in the space. So the whole issue around beauty plays out in many ways. So, for example, a friend of mine said to me once, someone said, um, said to them, are you in a relationship? Do you have kids? So they said, no, they're a, they're a black disabled woman as well. And they said, no, and they said, oh, you must be either ugly or disabled. So we, can, we know these things are happening because we hear it, we experience it. And this is the damage and harm of colonialism, ableism, and racism.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices piqued my, my interest. You you were talking about that a white disabled person in a wheelchair is the quote-unquote acceptable face of, of disability. So I'd be curious to explore that a bit more about what is the acceptable face of disability and what is not the acceptable face of disability. I've, I've had this discussion around the Paralympics, for example, some people seeing that the Paralympics is absolutely brilliant for um normalizing and bringing disability into mainstream conversations other people saying it's saying that you need to be superhuman as a disabled person to be accepted so i'd be um curious if we can explore the what you might perceive as or might, what you might think of as the acceptable face of disability and i suppose the contrary of that is the unacceptable face of of disability i think that people are very used to minorities
0: being a single identity issue, as we spoke about earlier. So that, that indicates that there's a default. There's an assumed default on what is the default in society. The default in society is a white man. So not just for disabled people, if you look at any community, a marginalized community, the sort of face of that community is always the form of that community in white man, or as close as they can get to that. Um, and I don't believe it's any different for disabled people. That being said, in terms of the kind of way you live your life, lifestyle choices, um, being disabled is something that's not very digestible for people. And I know this because um, I can't leave my house without being harassed in the street. So there are, but there are certain things that people like. They want you to skydive. This is no hate to people that skydive, but they want you to, you know, challenge, um, people's perception of our supposed physical incapabilities. So, the idea is, if your value is based on what you can and can't do, then you have to show people you can do more than what your blogs would do. Your blogs wouldn't skydive, but I can skydive. You know what I mean? I can win gold medals. I can. And again, that's not to denigrate the efforts of people who are athletes and do amazing things. Um, but to me, this order, having the Paralympics, for instance, should just be about having an equitable space for disabled people to participate in sports. It's not a moment for everybody to realize we have value all over again. But I would say it's the same for black people too, if you really want to go there. I think that sports as an arena has been a great way for, it's a, it's a large aspect of respectability and allowing black people to have humanity in the eyes of the wider society. Outside of that, how are we considered in terms of, especially in Britain, how are we considered in the society? What do people think our value is? But when it comes to sports, the Olympics, whether it's football, whatever it, it may be, all of a sudden people can understand the role blacks play. So, There is a tokenistic element that kind of exists for all of these groups. And I just think it's no different for disabled people. The consequences are just a bit more difficult for us to contend with in the day to day.
1: Michelle, do you think that some forms of disability are more acceptable or more digestible for, for the wider community?
3: I just want to go back on the point around the Paralympics before I answer your question. Are you okay with that? Please do. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so there's a point that Katusha's made and you made. It's around the Paralympics, and I think we can see in the Paralympics the disparity in terms of racism and around global wealth in terms of the sport people from global majority country take part in, and it's. It's something that I often, when I watch the Paralympic, I'm thinking, oh, why are we not talking about this much more? When you can see, for example, countries where you've got, you know, I'm not, I'm not a very good sport, the greatest runners in the in the Olympics, and then in the Paralympics, those areas you may not see the same, the same, and it's, and it's particularly in the sports where equipment is required to take part. So I don't want to elaborate a lot on that, but it's a point for us to think about so this isn't just about sport it's about recognizing the racism in the games between but it's also also about recognizing the issues around imperialism, what it done to countries and the colonialism of that because the we can see clearly and I think the Paralympics is a clear area where you can see those issues and I urge you Marcus to go back and have a look on YouTube for you to spot these differences
1: so what you're saying is that what I'm hearing is that racism often um, manifests itself in access to resources and uh, that can be physical equipment and when it comes to, and this is throughout sport, but it just the Paralympics amplifies that difference and that issue of access to to resources and, and equipment.
3: Yeah, you can see it in the Paralympics; it's clear in the Paralympics. But it's not something we, because when we talk about the Paralympics, we often are talking about the Paralympics from countries where they're more globally resourced. Countries that are less resourced because of the draining of the of through in, in, through, through you know uh, through Britain and other European countries taking the resources away, you can see the impact on our people. And we cannot, we should not really be talking about the Paralympics without talking about the racism within the sport. So, ne- yeah. So, I just want to pick that up because I think it's important that we raise all these issues on this conversation. And now having said that, I've forgotten what your question was to me. (laughs) Well, it's okay.
1: Um, I'd like to move on. You you mentioned education um, and I said I was going to come back to it. And I know that yourself, Michelle and and Katush, you've both campaigned and worked around um, issues of inclusive education. So as you brought it up first, Michelle, um, so I'll bring it, I'll ask you first. Um, what? How does education differ when it comes to, for Black, British, disabled people? And tell me a little bit about your work.
3: Yeah, so I am uh, the director for the Alliance for Inclusive Education, which has been in existence for over 30 years. And I haven't been working there for that time, <laughs> not that long. Um, but the the organisation campaigns for the ultimate end of segregated education. And I think generally it's important that we have an understanding, and I mentioned it earlier in our conversation, around the laws that are in place, that are are in place that allow for people like myself and Katush and others to be segregated. So just that law in itself means, and we can see it, means that it can be used in ways to drive our black disabled children out of mainstream schools. So, we can see that the system, where the law that is used to drive our individuals who have an impairment is also being used on, as well, non-disabled black children out of mainstream schools and disabled children who would be, in quotes, mild impairments. So it's about how the intersectional oppression of our particularly children in schools and college are understood and also responded to. So until we, I think, as a society, recognise that education is an important part of social justice. I think it's always going to be seen as acceptable to remove and separate and disconnect disabled, all disabled individuals into different schools that is not part of the the ordinary experiences. Unless, sorry, Marcus, unless it's seen as the disabled child can fit comfortably without any changes being done. In the, main, in, the, in the mainstream or ordinary experiences. And I think this is where the problem lies.
1: Michelle, I know that you've also done some work um, to explain and explore the contribution that disabled people have made to our struggles for equality. And you mentioned before about emancipation. Um, can you talk about some of this work as well and some of the figures that I might not know and some of our listeners might not know
3: yeah so um I think one of the piece of work that I done what really did excite me the most was in 2007 um which was the bicentenary of the movement of african enslaved people on the sea and I I make this point clear because we know there's two different dates that we go through that we 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 discuss and I remember at the time when all the events and activities were happening. Um, I myself knocked the door of GLA and said, you know, what are we doing about the experiences of black So people in this? And I said, how can we be having this conversation without talking about the role So people played in the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade? So I did, I'd call it now, Really rough piece of research, but important, and it was important to look at our role within that and 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 give um, our voice and body just presence in the whole conversation. And when it was a really hard piece of work to do, I mean, tears would roll down my eyes when I was going to archives. Um and just sourcing that information, because it's something that growing up in a, particularly my time, it wasn't something that was often spoken about. you didn't learn about it at school, neither. I went to a segregated school, so you, you learned nothing to be honest. It wasn't something that you actually I, you know you, you, you was informed and just I remember going to the um, natural History Museum. And I remember one of the Liberians saying, "Be careful with the book." and I said, "My response was, "Don't tell me to be careful with my ancestors' resources and i i was I was so hurt and you know, and it wasn't that I was causing harm to the books or damaging the books in any way. it was I touched the book, and I was like, "Don't you dare tell me not to touch this book And you know it was just the pain of the stories and things that we I was I, I I'd, I'd come ac- across, but the important thing about this piece of work was that I'm I gave presence to the role our ancestors played within the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade. Another piece of work that I've done is was I set up a website some time back, and that was really about look at our experiences as black disabled people in Britain and some of the names you asked me to just give name to and for the different piece of work I've done is Mary Prince. Now for me when I, I'd heard people speak about Mary Prince but it's always from an erasing her impairment and then when I read her book I realised she was a disabled woman but then I also realised she had campaigned on all the things that we speak about independence and rights as a woman and for me what was really important about mary prince is that a woman who had gained her freedom had come to england was fighting fighting for the rights but also went to the courts and took on this by herself who would at that time would have experienced some of the most deepest level of intersectional discrimination and i and when i started reading around people like mary prince um, uh, Elizabeth Sugg another disabled woman who's from America and Jonah Truth but it was it was a hard piece of work because our, our identity as a disabled person you have to actually look deep to find out who we are in those stories because they get erased and when you when people often talk and write about disabled people of that time they don't speak about it our impairments. So you'll read, oh, they were injured, or this. But it was just exciting to see the role that that we as disabled people had played. And and I think when we talk about decolonization and we talk about our history, and as 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 a uh, Kadush said, we cannot talk about stuff without talking about us and the role that we played in that. And also some of the most recent people, such as Ozzy Stewart. Um, Millie Hill. There's some key figures. Ollie Ozzie Stewart is still around with us. Thankfully, Millie Hill passed away. Um, great, great leaders in the disability movement. Sadia Nilsson, some of the great figures that often get a raise when people are speaking. Um, even young Katouche, you know, I've got a lot of respect for Katouche. Um, another one I definitely think is going to be a, a great activist and he's a great activist and will go down in our history books. Um yeah, and definitely people like Ozzy Stewart for me as well. And in the Caribbean, um, we've got we've got Derek Palmer and some other great figures as well, globally. As well as Iola um, is another guy who's, who's, who's doing some great work. So there's loads of names and I won't keep going on because I don't like doing this. It's not fair and the names I'm missing out.
1: Um, Michelle, you've preempted my, my last question as we've rapidly run out of time. So Katusha, I'm going to go to you because there's so many more um, questions I actually had that we didn't didn't cover so for people that either want to um uh, read up more about these issues or explore more who would you suggest that maybe people should be following on social media or be looking out for now and please um let people know how they can um either follow you or find out more about your work
0: um well first of all thank you so much michelle i'm really touched because Michelle is definitely somebody that I've looked up to as a Black disabled woman who's done so much for our community and I'm learning so much from. But in terms of people who I feel like have an amazing voice, I have to shout out um, Imani Barberin, Crutches and Spice on socials, an amazing um, communications expert and writer. Um, she's a Black disabled woman based in the U.S. with amazing perspective and an amazing teacher as well. Um, I feel like Michelle got most of the names that I would think of because remember I learned from her. Um, I think another really, I I, I like to read a lot where I can. And I think I read a book called Between Fitness and Death. It was recommended to me by a friend about the experiences of black disabled people during the transatlantic slave trade. Um, And that was an amazing read. The book I mentioned earlier, Belly of the Beast, Um, really great pieces of work, and I think, in general, I think the more we understand about our respective identities, they allow us to understand how they inform each other. So, other books that I love, Afro pessimism by Frank B. Wilderson, I never shut up about that book, and despite the fact that it speaks to blackness, the way that it does, I think has really helped shape my understanding of disability as well. So it's a great one to kind of, you know, have in tandem with the other books that I named.
1: Okay. Katouche, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today and explaining exactly why I was going to say Black British Disability Matters, but I'm going to change it now um, to why Black British Disabled People's Lives Matter. Um, It's definitely given me a new perspective on how I should view my own community, on intersectionality and making sure we don't separate different issues and different um, identities I'll also watch events like the Paralympics in a completely different way now and sports generally so thank you both thank
3: you thank you Marcus
1: okay Lenny apologies for recording that episode without you (laughs) but you have to admit that was pretty interesting right all right, like I
2: said at the start, I'm now more convinced than ever that we need an essay on Black British Disabled People's Lives Matter if we ever do a second book of Black British Lives Matter.
1: As the kids say,
2: 100. I honestly worry about you, Marcus, and please never try to use any slang ever again. <laughs> but on a more serious note, listening to that episode just makes me want to research about Black disabled heroes. And I'd never put two and two together that so many of our Black heroes who fought against slavery and colonialism were disabled. Just thinking about Kunta Kinte having his foot chopped off for running away has given me a whole new perspective on roots.
1: I know, hiding in plain sight. I feel we literally need to rewrite our history books, putting black disabled people front
2: and centre. Okay, I grudgingly admit that was a good episode without me. And next week, I think we have Black British Art Matters. You know it's going to be a good year as we talk about the importance of artists like Chris O'Filly.